welcome to this. I notice you're all looking at this thing behind you. The one person in the room who understands it, fortunately, is the speaker, and he will speak to it. Welcome. My name is Mick Cox. I'm uh, uh, the co-director here of, of LSE uh, Ideas with my good friend Arnie Westad, whom I told had a birthday the other day. So happy birthday, Arnie. You, you, he looks outstandingly good for 69. Oh, sorry, is it 59? Um, getting younger every day, Arnie, yes, indeed. Uh, this is the third in a series of lectures entitled Philip Ramon Lectures, uh, made possible by a very generous donation by Manny Ramon, who's here this evening, and welcome to you, Manny. Um, this series of lectures has explored the issues of secrecy, uh, the issue of open government, uh, the issue of surveillance, and many, many other things which could not be more pertinent at this particular moment in time. In the first lecture, our speaker explored some of the issues to do with the early American uh, Republic. In the second lecture, he looked at what he called the open government in an age of uh, total war, and he moves the narrative forward uh, this evening to look at the Cold War and the culture uh, of secrecy. Uh, Matt Connolly is an old friend of the school and a personal friend of myself and, of course, of ideas. He's currently professor in the Department of History at Columbia University, one of the founders and now director of one of our successful double degrees, the LSE Columbia University double degree in international and world history. Matt has written widely on a number of subjects, but I would suggest that if you want to really read the real Matt Connolly, go to look at his book on Algerian independence, which is by far and away the best book on that, and an extraordinarily interesting book on the whole question of population control called Fatal Misconception, The Struggle to Control World Population, which I found one of the most extraordinary books that I've read over the last few years, one of the most challenging. Uh, Matt, however, doesn't like to be pigeonholed, having done Algeria and having done fatal misconceptions, he's now moving on to this relatively new area, at least for him, and it's great that he can be here this evening. Uh, I'm delighted, Matt, that you're here to do the third lecture before we will be a very attentive and, I hope, a very critical audience, which will ask you lots of tough questions. So we're here tonight. I wonder if you could give an LSE welcome to Matt Connell to talk on Cold War and the culture of secrecy. Matt, over to you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mick, uh, for a very generous introduction. Um, I, uh, I also want to thank Manny Rahman uh, for uh, making these lectures possible. I'd like to thank all of you for coming. Uh, especially want to thank the recidivists uh, in the audience. Um, and I, I want to ask your patience for a moment, just while I uh, recap a little anyway, um, some of the things that we've talked about in the last two lectures. Because um, there is a, you know, an overarching um, theme to all of this. There's an arc to these lectures. Um, you're hearing, as, as Mick said, some, some new work. And it's work that I hope will eventually uh, result in a book. And the book I'm working on is going to be called The Rise and Fall of Official Secrecy. So I started out saying that for many people, you know, it's hard to believe that uh, we're living in a period in which official secrecy increase, is increasingly untenable. Um, so I thought it made sense to start from the beginning, um, and the beginning of the American Republic. 
But all along, I've been trying to ask uh, and answer uh, questions that at least I've found difficult uh, to answer, at least from the readings that I've been able to locate. Um, And tonight, I want to focus in particular on this period of official secrecy out of control, how it begins to to go completely out of control. And I want to ask some questions, um, you know, to begin with, how it is, you know, that a state that was founded on the principle of open and accountable government, you know, could allow for official secrecy to take hold in this way, um, allow for it to grow in strength, you know, from year to year and decade to decade, to the point where it really has uh, gone completely out of control. Now, when first we met three months ago, we looked at this uh, history of the early republic, we started with some theories, and especially the theory of Max Weber. Uh, it's the most famous theory on official secrecy. It was Weber who said, and I'm quoting, that every bureaucracy seeks to increase the superiority of the professionally informed by keeping their knowledge and intentions secret. But I don't think this theory can really explain that arc, that trajectory, um, how things um, began the way they did um, in the United States. The United States, after all, you know, was founded in secrecy. It was founded in secret meetings among men who were practicing concealment and deception. But still, for the first century of its existence, um, the American Republic was radically transparent, at least by the standards of its day. Now, this was both by default and by design. Um, but I tried to show how there was really very little effort made to try to keep communication secret. Uh, there was almost no investment in either intelligence or counterintelligence. But at the same time, uh, because of free schools, government printing, and a cheap postal system, information and communications of all kinds uh, were quite cheap, uh, if not entirely free. And in fact, as I tried to show in the, the last lecture, there was actually more security in the U.S. postal system than in the State Department's own overseas communication system. And that's because that's the way the American public wanted it. That's what they cared about. Now, even on the eve of the First World War, in the United States, there was still no official secrets act or anything like it. Um, unlike in other states, there was no uniform system for designating state secrets. And it was only with the coming of the First World War, uh, when the United States for the first time was subject to systematic espionage and sabotage, that senior U.S. officials finally realized that this had made American society vulnerable. And they reacted in a typically American fashion. They overreacted. Um, they went to extremes. So last time I, I talked a bit about that period of the Espionage Act, a uh, period of anti-German hysteria, where you know, German songs and music and so on were banned in many American towns and cities. Um, I also talked about the Palmer Raids. All these were systematic of a, of a kind of overreaction you know, to this period of radical transparency. But it was also short-lived. You know, the Espionage Act is still on the books, but it was reined in on a series of, uh, of Supreme Court decisions uh, further circumscribed the scope and application of that, that very otherwise wide-ranging law. And in the interwar years, the U.S. once again largely abandoned intelligence gathering. It hardly even bothered to maintain an archive of state secrets. But during the New Deal era, and with the president, President Roosevelt, who valued intelligence and who was obsessed with archives, Official secrecy was once again taken to a new level. Even gossip between neighbors uh, came to be designated as a state secret, 
in the sense that even gossip, it was said, could lead uh, to the loss of American lives. Loose lips, after all, might sink ships. But total secrecy of this kind couldn't work during the Cold War. There were limits as to what the government could do absent a formal declaration of hostilities. So the U.S. government could and did draw up lists of subversives. Uh, It could subject them to surveillance and infiltration and manipulation, as the FBI did to many groups on the left uh, under J. Edgar Hoover. But it could not actually round up thousands of people and imprison them without charge. The state could pressure and browbeat editors and imprison reporters unwilling to divulge their sources, sources of classified information, but it could not actually censor print or broadcast media. Now, these limits on state power were exasperating for American leaders. Now, after all, while the United States still seemed laughably open to subversion and espionage, the Soviet Union seemed utterly opaque and impenetrable. And for American leaders in the early Cold War, the Soviet Union seemed even more dangerous than the Nazis or the Empire of Japan. Because it was assumed that if it came to war, this would be a nuclear war, one that would likely bring the ruin of civilization. And the United States, despite its enormous power, would not even be able to protect its own capital from destruction in the first hours of such a conflict. Uh, This is an image from a briefing given to Congress uh, in a closed session in 1952, showing congressmen and senators what would happen if Washington was struck uh, just with uh, an atomic bomb, a kind of bomb that uh, the U.S. now had in the hundreds in its own arsenal, in which it was uh, assumed the Soviets would rapidly be building themselves. And it was just a few years later, uh, John Hertz and uh, a German political scientist who migrated to the United States and taught international law uh, in the U.S. It was in 1957 that John Hertz observed the great paradox of this time, the fact that even the most powerful states seem to be losing their sovereignty, their ability to control and protect their own borders and their own citizens. Hertz said that, quote, utmost strength now coincides in the same unit with utmost vulnerability, absolute power with utter impotence. It was also then, writing around the same time, that the sociologist Edward Schills observed that there were certain secrets that had a unique power to fascinate and disrupt. These kinds of secrets, the kinds of things that were only shown in closed sessions of Congress, or sometimes not even to Congress, That is, as Schultz put it, secrets with an aura of faithfulness, a secret in which the apocalypse dwells. During the Cold War, the secret of nuclear weapons was the most fascinating and disruptive secret of all. And combined with communism, which American leaders viewed as a vast conspiracy, it created a problem that could not be solved. Virtually no one at this time predicted that communism would collapse without a fight. Even without nuclear war, it was feared that it might eventually triumph through subversion. So the Cold War, therefore, seemed likely to stretch indefinitely into the future. So tonight I want to talk about how this insoluble problem led American leaders to create or try to create durable institutions to protect society, even at the risk of transforming society 
even at the risk, as Eisenhower put it, of creating a military-industrial complex that would subvert and control the state. But they judged it impossible to trust the press, which was no longer, after the Second World War, no longer willing to submit to censorship, nor did they think they could trust Congress, which was now eager uh, to reassert its power vis-a-vis the executive and launch a whole series of investigations. Instead, they preferred a strategy of secrecy at the source. So if they couldn't censor and they couldn't deny uh, Congress's ability to investigate, they would try to protect any secrets from leaking out of the government to be divulged in congressional hearings or newspapers. Now this project, creating secrecy at the source, required creating a whole culture of secrecy, a set of beliefs and practices. Beliefs and practices that started in the Defense Department but that gradually suffused the entire federal bureaucracy. And once unleashed, secrecy grew out of control. More and more information was classified because classifying information made it more valuable to the officials who controlled that information. And there was no penalty for overclassification. At the same time, there were more and more leaks because so many people had access to secret information. Officials would not stop using this information to advance their personal or institutional agendas in ways that often challenged the president's own power to control information and to assert leadership. Now, virtually no one was ever prosecuted for leaking. Now, this was in part because it would have required presidents to go to Congress and the courts. Something like an official secrets act would have actually made it much easier to prosecute leakers and to prosecute journalists, too. But that would have required that the executive, the president, share this power to create secrets and to control them. And that was something that no president was willing to do. Instead, I'm going to talk about what they did do, how it is they tried to control this culture of secrecy and try to regulate it. There were a whole series of attempts of what passed for reform. Now, ostensibly, they were meant to ensure transparency, but they were actually aimed at consolidating control of secrecy in the White House. Now, this long struggle culminates with Richard Nixon, a president who challenged some of the core principles of U.S. Cold War policy, but also a president who, more than any of them, was obsessed with secrecy, obsessed with his own control of information, and who was eventually consumed by it. And in fact, and this is the irony I'm going to leave you with, some of the very things that he did to consolidate control of information, above all, creating systems to control that information, electronic systems of controlling information, actually ensured that future leaks would be truly massive. Now I'm going to leave that part of it uh, to the next lecture and talking about um, how it is that we're living in an age of massive leaks and more than that, the potential for mining the information in these leaks and also the information in declassified documents to make out the patterns in official secrecy. And I'll be talking a bit about some of the experiments that I and others have been working on uh, to see what we can learn about official secrecy by using natural language processing and machine learning. We're in effect using the data uh, that was first created during the Nixon administration and by every administration that followed. Um, but for tonight, I'm just going to talk about this history um, and how it is that it culminated with this idea that electronic records would allow for tighter control of information, even if the actual outcome was quite different. 
Now, to get back to the secrecy itself, there are different kinds of secrecy. Even when we limit it to official secrecy, to state secrets, um, we have to be specific. And so, to begin with, there are the secrets that the state knows and that no one else knows. But there's also the secrets that the state knows about other people without their knowing it. Now, it's been argued that there ought to be some kind of relationship between state secrecy and individual privacy, that these different kinds of secrets ought to be in balance. Uh, And this is something that was really brought out in um, the current controversy over uh, the National Security Agency and its surveillance efforts. It's argued that the more we give up our privacy in the name of national security, the more we ought to know about how that information is used, or at least know what kinds of information is being gathered and for what purposes. But that's not what happened during the first 30 years of the Cold War. Instead, both kinds of secrecy increased dramatically. The state, the United States, had vastly more information that it sought to guard against disclosure. And the state also insisted on knowing the secrets of others, both through intelligence and counterintelligence, including background checks on millions of Americans. But these secrets could be more or less valuable. Now, first, whether it was the Soviet order of battle or the identity of KGB operatives in the United States, this kind of intelligence could be useless or worse if the Soviets knew their American counterparts possessed it. Now, once a source was identified, the KGB could craft disinformation to cause maximum damage. Now, secondly, however valuable on its face, intelligence might not be worth the risks of obtaining it, whether through blackmail, bugs, break-ins, or wiretapping. Now, diplomatic relations could be damaged, congressional investigations launched, careers and reputations ruined. Now, for both these reasons, there was a need for another kind of secrecy. That is, secrecy about secrecy, or deep secrecy, as some call it. That is, when officials concealed the very fact that they were concealing something. Now, this deep secrecy consists of the things that only the state knows and that nobody else would even know to ask about. Now, it could include whole programs or even whole agencies. Um, The very existence of the National Reconnaissance Office, for instance, was classified for decades. Uh, For a long time, the National Security Agency uh, was known as the NSA or no such agency because its mere existence was classified. And even to this day, you know, the budgets of these organizations, in in their details anyway, are, are entirely classified. But perhaps the first and best example of this kind of deep secrecy is the Manhattan Project. Manhattan Project to build an atomic bomb. Now, under General Leslie Groves, the Manhattan Project pioneered uh, new methods for ensuring operational security, methods that became systematized and spread across the government. The core principle of this system was compartmentalization. These were the goals that Groves laid out uh, for this uh, security system. And as you can see, these goals included, obviously, keeping knowledge of the Manhattan Project uh, from the Germans and the Japanese, but secondly, uh, to keep it as well from the Russians, 
Uh, this was uh, written um, when he was collaborating with his son and writing his memoirs um, after the end of the Second World War. He also, as you can see, wanted to keep as much knowledge as possible from other nations, um, to keep the U.S. in as strong a position as possible, keep knowledge from those who would interfere directly or indirectly in the progress of the work, such as Congress and the various executive branch offices. He wanted to limit discussion of the use of the bomb to a small group of officials, to achieve military surprise, um, and to operate the whole program on a need-to-know basis by use of compartmentalization. Now, this was the core principle of the whole security program. And here's what Grove said about compartmentalization. Compartmentalization of knowledge, to me, was the very heart of security. My role was simple and not capable of misinterpretation. Each man should know everything he needed to know to do his job and nothing else. Adherence to this rule not only provided an adequate measure of security, but it greatly improved overall efficiency by making our people stick to their knitting. But of course, they had to know what kinds of people they were. They had to find the right people. So Grove set up a division, a division that was especially charged uh, with ensuring security of the whole program. Hundreds of personnel were specifically assigned to this task. And there would be a clear distinction um, among the many hundreds of thousands of people who worked on the Manhattan Project between those who would have access to classified information and those who would not. And subsequently, in the course of the project, they made further distinctions between those uh, who would have access to secret or top-secret information. Top-secret being a whole new level of classification that only came about in the course of World War II, in part because of programs like the Manhattan Project. But again, it wasn't just about you know, whether you had top-secret security clearance. It's what it is that your job allowed you to know. Now, to ensure that they had the right kind of people um, and ensure that they could uh, be trusted with this kind of information and trusted to do their job, um, some 400,000 people were investigated um, before they ever uh, worked on the Manhattan Project. Now, each one of them was subject to background checks. They were fingerprinted and photographed. And each one had to sign the Espionage Act and acknowledge the penalties uh, for violating the act. <clears throat> I'm going to come back to, to these people in a moment. <laughs> but um, actually, I guess I'm, I'm not going to. I wanted to, uh, to show you the, uh, the actual form that you had to sign. Um, this is the form. It's not terribly exciting in itself, but it just uh, acknowledges that you understand the penalties of releasing classified information, um, signing and, and dating it and so on. And it would seem you know, that it would, um, I don't know, maybe form a kind of contract of some kind. At least that was the idea. Um, but of course, you know, it was the law of the land. I mean, whether you signed your acknowledgement or not, even if you forgot to put the date on it. It was still the law of the land. You could still be prosecuted. But in Britain, like the United States, it's a kind of ritual. In Britain, it's the signing of the Official Secrets Act. In the United States, it was signing the Espionage Act. That, in a sense, meant that you were now a member you know, of this community that had access to, to classified information. So part of this cultural secrecy included these kinds of rituals and practices that didn't necessarily have any practical purpose but still signified certain things. They had certain meaning. Now, in many respects, it worked. 
I mean, it's still astonishing when you think of it, how many hundreds of thousands of people worked on this program and how little information uh, leaked out, certainly um, in terms of other countries. But in one way, um, and, and also when you consider the senior officials, including Vice President Harry Truman, who had no notion of the Manhattan Project until uh, he succeeded to the presidency, and he was subsequently informed. So in many ways, this program really worked, and you can see why it was seen as a model. But it did fail completely in the very important um, task of keeping this information from the Soviet Union. Um, now, this is um, you know, one of those identification photographs, um, the one for, for Klaus Fuchs. Um, now, <clears throat> I think we have to be understanding when you think of it, because the task itself is incredibly complex. It's inherently difficult, because when you think of it, a background check is really just about what people have done in the past, even if you knew everything about them. It's not necessarily predictive of what they might do in the future. And in fact, Fuchs was just one of three different people who independently, each one of them, decided to uh, disclose what they knew, essential um, technical information about the construction of the atomic bomb uh, to the Soviet Union, and each for roughly uh, comparable reasons. Um, each one thought it would be dangerous for only one country, at least that's what they said, dangerous for just one country to have atomic weapons. Um, so it was a difficult task. Um, but it was made more difficult by a lot of confusion uh, in the program, confusion that would continue for years afterwards. And part of what made it hard to control this apparatus once it uh, began to, to grow, um, it was first of all indiscriminate. That's why I wanted to show you Santa Claus. Um, even Santa Claus um, needed to have a background check. Um, now, of course, I don't think Santa Claus had access to a lot of classified information, um, even when he entered these atomic facilities. Um, but it was an example of the ways in which um, this kind of program could be rather indiscriminate in the way that it was applied. Um, it could be um, rather rigid. And that in itself wasn't necessarily the problem, except that uh, there were certain ideas about what made someone disloyal um, that were questionable. Um, the very idea of loyalty as predictive of someone being a security risk was itself problematic. After all, disloyalty is not the only reason why somebody might divulge uh, privileged information. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons why people might share secrets, even if they're not disloyal. They might be careless. Uh, they might be subject to blackmail. They might drink too much. And over time, these kinds of background checks you know, would begin to ask these and many more kinds of questions to determine whether somebody was a security risk or not. But it's still supposed you know, that these markers were predictive of someone being a risk. And the process was imperfect at best. And over time, because it was so difficult to determine who would uh, divulge information, other kinds of markers came to be used, such as whether somebody uh, was a homosexual or not, came to be seen as a reason why somebody might be a security risk. Even though there was no case of anyone ever being uh, blackmailed um, and uh, becoming an intelligence asset because of their homosexuality. Nevertheless, many tens and eventually hundreds of thousands of people were asked about their sexual orientation to the point where the United States government eventually began to keep lists of homosexuals 
to ensure that they would never be given a security clearance in the United States government. So the inherent difficulty of creating a program that was premised on the idea of loyalty as predictive of, of disloyalty or, or releasing uh, classified information and the fact that it was part of this larger culture that had its own kinds of ideas about what made somebody reliable or not reliable um, meant that the program was, was uh, one that would, would grow in scope uh, and the nature of it itself um, was something that became very much a part of people's lives in this period. Now, there are other problems with this um, program and even the whole idea of compartmentalization. But the program was seen as a tremendous success um, and it was celebrated before people had some understanding of, of how they had been, um, in the end, uh, how it is that the program had been penetrated. For a time, anyway, the, the security program in the Manhattan Project was seen as a model for the rest of the government. But even within the Manhattan Project, it was not always adhered to. So the scientists, for instance, Oppenheimer most of all, resisted this idea of compartmentalization and insisted on the free exchange of information among the scientists working on the project. Now some of the scientists, like Richard Feynman, for instance, um, enjoyed playing practical jokes um, and mocking uh, the, all the security measures in Los Alamos. Now one of the reasons uh, why it is a resisted compartmentalization and why many of the scientists didn't take it very seriously is that nobody ever told them how the program uh, was a target for espionage and how many cases there had been already in the course of the war of um, people being identified as attempting to infiltrate the program. Uh, there were over 100 espionage investigations in the course of the Manhattan Project. But none of them uh, were revealed to people, uh, who, the scientists who were working on the project. Now, if they had known, if they had been recognized as having a need to know uh, about this, um, this fact, then they may have taken the security measures more seriously. They might have been more willing to compartmentalize uh, what they knew and keep it from others. But of course, that would have slowed the progress of the project. So this kind of problem would, would recur again and again as the United States tried to sponsor research that would lead to the most advanced weapon systems, working with scientists who depended on sharing information, but finding time and again um, that it was impossible to square the circle. And this kind of compartmentalization could also be self-defeating, not just in slowing the rate of progress, but also in some cases in increasing the risk of disclosure. Even so, the same kinds of practices eventually spread to the rest of the government. And they were taken to a whole new level when it came to atomic secrets. So in the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, information on how to create a nuclear weapon was born secret. It was decided in this law that anyone, anyone who managed to produce a sketch or an equation representing what was now designated as restricted data data that would be useful in the development of nuclear energy or nuclear weapons, would be breaking the law merely by possessing it if they didn't have the clearance to have that kind of information. So here again, there are elements to this that weren't entirely practical in nature, um, but took on a kind of symbolic importance, you know, making certain kinds of secrets almost sacred, right? Um, born secret. So these kinds of mysteries and even miracles, uh, as Peter Gallison has put it, um, made this culture of, uh, culture of secrecy a real cultural system that had real meaning to the people who were a part of it. 
But by this point, by 1946, the Soviets really had what they wanted. Um, they had uh, the information they needed to uh, build atomic bomb that was very much like the atomic bomb um, built by the United States. This is a point that Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, the American senator, made in his book on secrecy, showing these two bombs side by side and showing the astonishing similarities between them. But this kind of compartmentalization of knowledge did succeed in preventing this information from being shared with the rest of the government. Even with the parts of the government, the intelligence agencies, that were trying to track Soviet progress in building atomic bombs. The Atomic Energy Commission, for its part, even if it had the secrets of how to build the bomb, was denied access to the signals intelligence that the U.S. was collecting on, uh, on the Soviet Union. And so these different kinds of information, which were useless when kept apart, nevertheless were and continued to be compartmentalized in this way, to be siloed in this fashion um, because of this overriding principle of compartmentalization and because that kind of compartmentalization served the interests of the, the officials and the bureaucrats in these different institutions and organizations. Because their control of this information, whether it was the secrets of how to build a bomb or what was being learned from signals intelligence from the Soviet Union, this kind of information was valuable to them. So valuable that the signals intelligence, for instance, um, and especially the, the decryptions that revealed the identity of Soviet operatives in the U.S., was kept even from the president. Even Harry Truman didn't um, have any knowledge of the War Department's success in cracking Soviet codes and revealing um, uh, Soviet agents. Um, and this um, is just one example of the uh, decrypts that were done uh, by the War Department uh, during the Second World War and continuing for a short time thereafter. And this is the one that allowed them uh, to identify the Rosenbergs as agents of the Soviet Union. But this kind of information uh, posed an exquisite dilemma. It was a dilemma because this kind of information would prove you know, that people like the Rosenbergs really were spying uh, for the Soviet Union. Um, but revealing this information uh, would mean that they would risk losing the source of this information. That if they tried to use it in a court to prosecute uh, Soviet spies, um, that the Soviet Union would then uh, change the codes and the U.S. would no longer be able to read uh, Soviet cable traffic. So this was an excruciating uh, dilemma. Uh, it was one that created great bitterness in the um, senior levels of the, uh, the U.S. government. Um, and this is the kind of um, uh, phenomenon that, that led officials, including Truman himself, to think that something had to be done, um, that they had to take some additional measures uh, to better protect uh, classified information, and also to begin to beef up the entire American intelligence apparatus uh, to better handle uh, these kinds of challenges. Um, so in 1947, with the National Security Act, uh, Truman set up the Central Intelligence Agency, and the law also gave uh, the director of the CIA um, the mandate to protect his sources and methods. And it was this legal mandate that allowed the CIA for decades thereafter to conceal virtually everything it did, at least in the clandestine branch of the, of the agency. But the failures of the CIA 
Um, failures, for instance, to predict when the Soviets would be able to detonate their first atomic bomb. Uh, failures to predict uh, the North Korean invasion of the South and the subsequent Chinese intervention. All these made um, something more seem all the more necessary, all the more imperative. Something that would entail not just the intelligence uh, community, but something that would involve the entire government. Um, that's when Truman decided that he would go ahead and create an executive order uh, that would make uh, every department and agency in the government follow the same standards of official secrecy as had been uh, uh, conceived within the Atomic Energy or the Manhattan Project and the, then the Atomic Energy Commission. And every department and agency, even the Agriculture Department, even the Commerce Department, would now have the... Uh, the mandate from the White House to create secrets. Now, this led to a backlash. Um, There's a backlash uh, that was led by newspaper editors, uh, many of whom thought that, uh, in effect, the United States was going down the same path as, as other countries that had succumbed to dictatorship, that it would begin with this kind of censorship and control of the press, and that it would be impossible to know where it might ultimately lead. So in this case, a seemingly hapless Harry Truman seems under the influence you know, of uh, dictators like Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini. Um, so the Truman administration defended itself vigorously. If you read the executive order, you can read that uh, they planned only to classify information when it was absolutely necessary, to try to classify it at the lowest possible level. Um, they pointed out that, in fact, many parts of the American government, even the Commerce Department, were now involved in defending the national security of the country. So all departments and agencies now had to have the same kinds of standards of what made for secret or top secret information, the same kinds of handling instructions, same kinds of background checks, and so on. But, in fact, there were deeper reasons why it is that they had decided you know, to make these practices uniform throughout the government. Now, the fact is the U.S. government had a lot to hide in this period, even if we've only become aware of some of these things um, only in recent years with recent uh, disclosures. So, for instance, um, it's true the War Department had had success in cracking Soviet codes, uh, but they had revealed that there were literally hundreds of agents operating within the United States. And even now, it's hard to know what would have happened if that kind of information was shared with the public. Would people then have felt that they had a better understanding of the Soviet threat, a more realistic appreciation of it? Would they have been less inclined you know, to believe the even more um, alarming um, numbers produced by people like Senator Joe McCarthy? Or might they instead have reacted in the opposite fashion? If they might have reacted even strong, more strongly than they did? But it wasn't only that. Um, it was the fact that um, the United States, for its part, had utterly failed in placing agents within the Soviet Union. Over a period of years, hundreds of would-be agents were parachuted into Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And every single one of them was either killed or captured. Hundreds of them, over years. That, too, was something they wouldn't willingly share. Um, now, after 1948, even the decrypts of Soviet communications had ended because of one of these Soviet agents uh, having disclosed it. 
Um, the U.S. government now knew very little about the Soviet Union. Um, and some in the know suspected that the whole reason why there was so much secrecy was really that they had so little. They had so little they had to cover it up, that it would be embarrassing to reveal how little the United States knew about its main adversary. Um, this was the view of, uh, of David Lilenthal, uh, who after all was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission and therefore had um, access to uh, the intelligence such as it is that they had been gathering from the USSR. And he said that the thing that rather chills one's blood is to observe what is nothing less than lack of integrity in the way the intelligence agencies deal with the meager stuff they have. It is chiefly a matter of reasoning from our own American experience, guessing from that how much longer it will take Russia using our methods and based upon our own problems of achieving weapons. When this is put into a report, the reader, that is the Congressional Committee, is given the impression, and deliberately, that behind the estimate lies specific knowledge, knowledge so important and delicate that its nature and sources cannot be disclosed or hinted at. So was this a reason why there was so much secrecy? It's because it was embarrassing to admit how little they had to show. Now, for some time, the U.S. would retain its lead in numbers of nuclear weapons. But without target intelligence, without knowing um, exactly what they were supposed to hit and where to find it, the U.S. nuclear deterrent was a bluff. If they didn't know exactly where they were going, it was going to be very hard to hit anything at all. Now, the United States, on the other hand, was an open book. Now, this was proven in 1950 when the, the CIA asked a team of Yale historians to see what they could learn about the American order of battle just from using open sources. Now, they mainly used what they could find in the Yale Library. And with this information, they were able to produce an estimate of the American order of battle, how it is that is, uh, American forces would be positioned and their relative strengths and so on all across the world with 90% accuracy. So without any access to classified information of any kind. Now, Truman himself was, was alarmed when he read this. What was even better was they had uh, uh, a Russia expert write the report as if it was produced by Soviet intelligence. So it made for even more chilling reading uh, when it landed on the president's desk. And Truman disclosed this, and he talked about it in a press conference when he justified the new executive order on classification. But it begged the question, how could the U.S. actually protect sensitive information without resorting to censorship? How could it do it without pulling books off the shelves, maybe burning them or at least classifying them? Was too much information classified, as Truman administration spokesman had said in justifying the new executive order, or was it too little? Now, Truman denied that they were attempting anything like censorship, and technically that was true. They weren't actually going to prevent editors or reporters from publishing anything. They were just going to try to prevent them from getting any information at all. So this, as they said, was secrecy at the source, preventing sensitive information ever from getting to journalists or to congressmen. Now, as soon as Truman um, uh, signed the, uh, the executive order, 
Uh, let me just take you back for a moment. As soon as Truman signed the executive order, uh, departments and agencies started classifying information that had nothing to do with national security. It began almost immediately. And in fact, uh, Truman's people said, look, we're stopping them. But other people realized right away that, of course, the White House wouldn't always be on watch, right, and able to prevent these kinds of disclosures. Um, that, in fact, uh, this practice of classifying information was rapidly spreading all across the government. Now, there was an interdepartmental committee that was meant to monitor and maybe even control this, uh, classification, uh, but they had already been denied by the, the Defense Department and the State Department from this ability to police what was being classified. Now, in 1953, um, Eisenhower tried to change things. Um, shortly after he assumed office, he wanted to try to reform the system. And this new executive order uh, would stand for almost 20 years. It was notable in a number of ways. And one of the most notable things is that for the first time, they actually tried to define what kind of information should be classified. And they gave examples of what that kind of information could be. So in the case of top secret, for instance, uh, they described how it is uh, that this would have to be information that might lead to grave damage to the nation, like a definite break in diplomatic relations. Uh, an armed attack against the U.S. or its allies, a war, the compromise of military defense plans, or intelligence operations, or scientific or technological developments vital to the national defense. So they tried to be concrete and give examples of what it was exactly that was supposed to be classified. And it also took away the ability to classify information from some 17 different departments and agencies, restricted it only to those that were directly involved in national defense, so not the Department of Agriculture. Now, there was also to be a continuing review for declassification. This was one of the first times there was any specific provision for such a thing. Um, and Eisenhower made the National Security Council responsible for ensuring compliance with these new orders. But it was hardly credible to think that the NSC, which amounted to about 80 people, uh, was going to be responsible for policing secrecy practices across the entire federal government. Um, now, left to their own devices, virtually no department or agency actually implemented any real program for declassification. Uh, neither would the courts interfere. Uh, when, for instance, in 1948, uh, the families of um, the crew of a B-29 that had been on an intelligence mission and crashed uh, through the negligence of, um, of the people maintaining the plane, when they brought suit, in federal court to get access to these records, to prove their claims. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it took five years. But in 1953, in a landmark case, the United States versus Reynolds, the Supreme Court decided that they could not have access to this information. And in fact, they decided that judges should not even look at these classified documents for risks that this, this kind of information would leak out. They would, in effect, take at face value the claims of public officials um, that they could not share this kind of information. And in fact, when these documents were finally released many years later, it turns out there was no sensitive or classified information in the maintenance reports of this plane. Right? Even so, um, in 1953, and this is one of the ironies, many ironies of this case, um, Judge uh, Vinson argued that air power being one of the most potent weapons in our scheme of defense, 
it was essential uh, that the government be able to protect this kind of technology, right, from the Soviets. But ironically, the very next year, the Aircraft Industries Association complained uh, that secrecy practices had led to more rather than less classification, even after Eisenhower's order. It was interfering with production schedules and increasing costs to the government. Now, it was possible, even if the courts would do nothing, that Congress might push back. And in this period, many congressmen and senators did think that the government um, was uh, wrong in its policies um, to protect the nation's secrets. But many of them thought the government wasn't doing enough. So Senator Joe McCarthy and many like him launched investigations to try to show how there was a cover-up, how it is the federal bureaucracy had been penetrated by Soviet agents and was no longer protecting national security. Now, this finally provoked Eisenhower to issue one of the most sweeping assertions of executive privilege in the whole history of the 20th century, where he essentially said that if he deemed it, for national security reasons, impossible for an American official to appear before Congress, then they would not appear before Congress. Nobody from the CIA was allowed to go to Congress um, to appear before any of these committees. So it's one of the ironies here. It was the extreme anti-communists who actually pushed the presidents to assert executive privilege in a way that would make it even easier for them and all their successors to protect official secrets of all kinds. Now, at the same time, Eisenhower and Truman, like Truman before him, ramped up the internal security program, and they extended it to people who were working on contract for the federal government. So now some 2 million people at 18,000 different plants uh, would have to have background checks. This is um, discussed at the National Security Council meeting. And Eisenhower, listening uh, to about one of these cases, was shocked to hear a familiar name. The name of Lee Dubridge, a noted physicist uh, who had helped to develop radar during the Second World War. Somebody who had been Eisenhower's science advisor. Eisenhower said, my God. Did we question Dubridge? (laughs) Eisenhower himself was amazed at the kinds of people who were caught up uh, in this uh, campaign. Now, he was assured that it had been cleared up, but clearly he was rattled. And he talked about how he himself had once been duped into writing a friendly message to a communist front organization. Eisenhower felt that even he wasn't necessarily uh, completely innocent, at least according to the kinds of methods being used in these background checks. now, he would joke about how far you know, some people seem to want to go. Um, you're not going to see it here, but he, he talked about how it is that some seem to want to suspend habeas corpus, which he thought was a bad idea. Um, he didn't want to um, develop a new American Official Secrets Act. He thought it was the worst time possible uh, to go to uh, Congress to try to secure that kind of legislation, clearly thinking of, of Joe McCarthy. Um, but he, uh, let's see if I have it for you here. He, he could be a bit ruthless, though, in, in what it is that he thought the U.S. should do about leaks. So in this case, uh, when he was told about um, how it is that they were trying to make a clearer distinction between confidential information and secret information, Eisenhower, the president, turned to Secretary Wilson, the Secretary of Defense, and with a smile said that you could read all this classified data in the newspapers anyway. If he were the Secretary of Defense, he would, quote, cut some throats with a dull razor. So Eisenhower, like many presidents, was exasperated by the persistent leaking. Leaking that was done, especially within the Defense Department, oftentimes to justify appropriations 
whether for new bombers or new missiles. Right? So he was exasperated by this, but he also didn't know what to do about it. In 1956, um, uh, he created a uh, committee within the Defense Department to try to investigate these leaks. And he was under some pressure uh, from Congress, not about the leaks so much, but about everything that was already being done to prevent them. And this was Senator Hubert Humphrey, the future vice president, who in a, a report for the Senate said, and I'm quoting, we have done many things in the name of security during the past decade. Indeed, as a practical matter, our present security system is a phenomenon only of the past decade, that is, the Cold War. We have enacted espionage laws and tightened existing laws. We have required investigation and clearance of millions of our citizens. We have classified information and locked it in safes behind closed doors or locked doors, in locked and guarded buildings within fenced and heavily guarded reservations. We have not paused in our necessary, though frantic, quest for security to ask ourselves, what are we trying to protect and against what? What can we effectively protect? What specific measures will give us the degree of protection we want or need? What price are we willing to pay for security? So there was already now some clamor, not just from the right, but now um, from uh, liberals as well, about the problems of the security system. Not just that it didn't seem to um, prevent Soviet espionage, but also that it seemed to be going to excess. Um, and it was not based on uh, a risk management kind of approach, a more rational approach. So Eisenhower created a committee to try to investigate what could be done. And in fact, what they found um, is that problems were not just of leaks. It was also overclassification. That yes, there is too much information leaking out, but it was in part because too much information was being classified. And these two things were related. That it was precisely because so much information was stamped top secret that officials had become contemptuous of the whole idea of official secrecy. Now the problem, they said, was not with these executive orders. It was the fact that there was a whole culture, really, um, that was ignoring them and using them to their own purposes. Now this was not a problem in the lower ranks. Instead, they said, this was at the top. It was coming from the top. That is, senior level officials were the ones who were mainly responsible. And that any new system should mainly focus on Washington. Now, this is uh, something that other presidents observe as well. John F. Kennedy would say that the ship of state is the only one that leaks from the top. So it's not typically the, the underlings you know, who were fearful of prosecution. It was senior officials who were leaking for their own purposes. But these kinds of committees and commissions, they would come and go. They would often say much the same thing. But the culture of secrecy lived on. It became more and more entrenched. The U.S., after all, had even more to hide by the 1950s and 60s. More and more as time went by. There were covert operations to overthrow the governments of Iran and Guatemala. There were mind control experiments on unwitting subjects. Um, but there are also more routine kinds of reasons. Routine, everyday reasons why it is this culture of secrecy was spreading across the government. As Daniel Patrick Moynihan observed, secrecy is the currency of power. Secrets can be hoarded and traded for other things of value, including other secrets. And this is clear when you look at the career of people, careers of people like J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover, who had immense power, who was uh, someone who even presidents uh, feared, had this kind of power precisely because he had so many secrets. 
and he used them. He was an artist with leek, and he used leeks to destroy his enemies. Um, now, similarly, other officials, senior officials, Air Force generals who leaked information about the bomber gap or the missile gap, instead of being punished, much less prosecuted, they would gain higher office. They were promoted uh, for these practices. And this is the reason why Eisenhower would say, maybe we should cut some throats with dull razors. But Eisenhower also had a more practical suggestion. Uh, and this was the suggestion that Nixon would eventually take up. His idea was that there had to be a system for tracking who had access to what. There had to be some way of keeping track of who had seen what, so that when that information leaked, you could find out who was leaking it. Now, the problem, though, is that when he had this idea in the 1950s, um, the most advanced technology of, of this kind was the card index or the registry system. I mean, there were ways in which you could more or less, you know, if you go to the National Archives now, you look at files, you can more or less see like who's looked at, at a file, right? Um, and that might even work, except that in this period, um, more and more officials were overwhelmed with the numbers of files and the amount of information um, that was being classified and that could potentially be leaked. Um, in 1961, for instance, um, it was the historians in the State Department who described how more and more they were overwhelmed with what we would think of as big data, how it is that the amount of information being classified was increasing exponentially. And so the only way that you could create such a system for keeping track of secrets and who might be leaking them um, was by using information technology. Um, this was an experiment <clears throat> in uh, 1967 when, for the first time, uh, the State Department began to use an electronic record-keeping system. And what they did with this system was to extract what we would call metadata, right? So the from, the to, uh, the date, uh, the subject, and, and classification level, and so on. And with this kind of metadata, you could then create a data index, right? You have to imagine the you know, IBM punch cards, right, and old mainframe computers. Um, but still, it worked. You know, those punches in the right places um, could tell you um, and produce reports telling you who had seen which documents, and on what dates, on what subjects. Right? So the most essential metadata of all was the distribution list. Figure out who had seen which documents. Um, now, this was cutting-edge technology in 1967. But it continued to be developed um, in the years that followed. And it finally found a customer in, um, in Richard Nixon. Um, let's see if I can... Uh, well, I, may, I, may, I, I see I'm winding up here. But um, what, what I wanted to show you is how Nixon's um, own executive order was one that was much like Eisenhower's. In fact, in some ways, it was even more liberal why? Because Nixon said that he wanted to reduce the number of people who could classify information. He wanted to uh, reduce the amount of information that was classified as top secret. He said he wanted to create up automatic declassification. So documents that were more than 10 or 20 years old would automatically be declassified. But in all these ways, you know, Nixon's was only the most liberal and progressive you know, of all the executive orders up until that point. The problem with it was that Essentially, what Nixon was trying to do, what all of these presidents were trying to do, was to control, to consolidate um, secrecy within the White House. 
um, to limit the number of officials who could actually uh, create secrets to the smallest number possible and to limit the amount of information that was classified at the highest level um, to the smallest amount that they could. And at the same time, um, they wanted to declassify old secrets that they no longer cared about. Or in some cases, secrets uh, produced by previous administrations that they wanted to embarrass. Um, I've showed you a lot of documents tonight, um, so I'm not going to show you more. Um, but I, there's one in particular that I quite like. It's the one where they describe how it is that um, they're going to be going over the Kennedy administration records related to the Bay of Pigs and assassination attempts and so on. And so they decided that um, they don't just want the State Department to oversee what kinds of records are going to be released because it won't necessarily serve the interests of the White House. Instead, they want to put people like Bud Crow and John Ehrlichman in charge. Now, who are Bud Crow and John Ehrlichman? These are the White House plumbers, lovers of history. And it was for the specific purpose of, yes, declassifying information, but declassifying certain kinds of information that would be embarrassing um, uh, to their predecessors, that is, to the Kennedys. So um, Nixon adopts this uh, electronic records system it's Kissinger who brings computers into the State Department. And for the first time, they have this technocratic dream of how it is they're going to be able to track every individual um, and identify who's seen what. And this is what eventually leads to the, the, um, the enormous numbers of, of cables, um, all of them in the form of electronic records with dozens of different fields of metadata. These um, records accumulated over time to the point that by 2006 there were some 26 million of these records, electronic records, in the State Department. Um, and that's why um, WikiLeaks had so much to, to work with, right? Because once one of those uh, hundreds of thousands of people with security clearance decided that they wanted to get access to that database and share it with the rest of the world, um, instead of Daniel Ellsberg trying to smuggle out volumes of the Pentagon Papers, now hundreds of thousands of documents could be taken out on a single hard drive. So it's an irony, right? This attempt to, through electronic records, through a technocratic solution, to finally consolidate control of information and to stamp out leaking is precisely what made it possible um, to uh, leak information in the hundreds of thousands of documents. I'm just going to end with one quote, um, because I, I told you that information um, security grew out of control um, and that there was a peak and then finally a fall. But my favorite quote is, uh, again, it's going to be Nixon. I'll read it to you. Um, it, it's something that came out in 1974. It came out when they had the tapes from the White House. Um, and they had a transcript where Nixon was talking to Ehrlichman about this program, how it is they were going to transform uh, the security system. And the president said um, that he didn't really trust the people in charge of it. Um, it was uh, uh, Rehnquist, who was actually the future Supreme Court justice. But Nixon mispronounced his name, called him Wrenchburg. And that group of clowns uh, who were trying to get control of the security system. And he finally just showed this complete exasperation of this system that was out of control. And he said, and maybe another approach to it would be to set up, and remember I already mentioned to set up a new classification? Ehrlichman says right. Which we would call what? Let's just call it a new classification. No, don't use top secret. For me, ever again, I never want to see top secret in this goddamn office I think we just solved, shall we call it, uh, John, what sh should we give it a good name? Uh, President Secure, or uh, Eyes Only. 
is a silly thing, too. It doesn't mean anything more. Um, and then they go on. And they talk about all the different ways that they could designate information as presidential, presidential document, national security, so that national, oh, just national security classified, or national security. And they go on and on, all the different ways that they could keep that information secure. But it was a fruitless pursuit. Um, and it really did show at the end of the day how the system had grown out of control, um, such that even Nixon, with all his obsessions, could no longer control it. All right, so there, there you have it. Okay. Thank, thank, thanks very much, Matt, for that great lecture. Uh, for, for a few people in the audience, that was a walk down memory lane. Um, and a long overdue rehabilitation of poor, poor misunderstood Richard Norhouse Nixon. Um, can, I, uh, can I start off with something, Matt, maybe broaden the discussion out? All this information, all the secrecy, this accumulation of data, megadata, metadata, now big data. At the, end of the t- at the end of the day, all this was designed to try and understand one fundamental thing, I think, which was the Soviet Union, because that was the primary enemy, that was the system which was looking for global domination, it was said. And one would have thought that with all this secrecy, with this knowledge, if not of the military, then at least of the Soviet Union system as a system, you would have thought that the United States intelligence services and all these various people would have actually got it much better than they actually did. I've just written down 10 intelligence failures, mm-hmm. even before 1960. The Czech coup of 48, the Berlin airlift, the Chinese revolution, the first atomic bomb drop, uh, detonated by the USSR in 1949. Uh, they didn't get the North Korean attack on South Korea right. They didn't know that Khrushchev was going to make a secret speech in 1956. They certainly didn't get Sputnik right, and they, they were completely bamboozled by the fact that the Soviet economy, which was supposed to be so backward, could put an ICBM in space. The Berlin Wall was put up, and they were completely surprised, and then the Cuban, Cuban Missile Rise. You know, I could go on and on and on. I'm an old Sovietologist, so I kind of look at these things, and I can even tell you what much of American intelligence didn't know about the Soviet economy. They were either overstating how good it was or understating how bad it was. They didn't quite know what to do. So at the end of the day, maybe I'm overstating it to to a degree for effect, but it does seem to me at the end of the day, if all this is designed in the end for security, and security arises out of good intelligence about the primary enemy, the Soviet Union, why is it that so much was bad? How is it that so many things came along to surprise the intelligence community? Because I think the power of shock... Mm also has to be factored in here because so many things came along which shocked you know, the American intelligence service which right. added to the problems of then coming to rational decisions and rational discussion. Right. Just re- your reflections on that before yeah, I open um, up. Well, I mean, you know, it's said that, uh, that um, it's very hard to predict especially about the future. Right? <laughs> you borrow, yeah. yeah. Um, and many of the things you mentioned you know, would have entailed like making accurate predictions yeah. you know, about something that would happen. getting it so wrong. That's the yeah. Issue. I mean, I, I'm more critical of things like misstating um, uh, mis, mis, like, mis, um, the size of the Soviet economy, you know, things like that, than like, failing to predict events that mm. you know, are inherently hard to predict. Right? Sure, sure. As historians, have you ever um, noticed when historians try to predict the future? It's kind of sad. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I wouldn't give them too hard a time about uh, you know, the things that um, 
uh, that they couldn't predict mm. about the future. Because I think the nature of the problem itself uh, is almost intractable. Um, I mean, we have a hard enough time agreeing about why things happened in the past. Sure. Right? So, so it's an intrinsically difficult problem. Um, now, on the things that I think you could be more critical, and I am very critical of uh, the record of the intelligence community, things like you know, estimating the size of the Soviet economy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes that was because they overstated their ability to predict the future. Um, so you know, they, uh, uh, for instance, the 1950s assumed that the Soviet Union, the economy would continue growing at 6% indefinitely. Right, and so by perhaps 1982, the Soviet Union would overtake the United States. Um, so some, sometimes, you know, when they went seriously awry, it was because they were trying to predict the future, and they didn't want to revise, you know, kind of what they uh, had had misstated in the past. Um, but you know, what is to be done? Um, when Moynihan uh, wrote that book, Secrecy, which is still the only you know serious book-length study of official secrecy in the U.S., amazingly. Uh, you know, his conclusion was that the problem here was secrecy, that if the CIA you know, had been more open and had consulted with more people without security clearances, that they might have uh, gotten it right. You know, they would have seen not just the fact that the Soviet economy was maybe a third or less the size of the U.S., um, but also that they would, see that, would have seen that it was collapsing. But the problem I have with that is it's very hard to find experts outside of the U.S. government who predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, so, um, so I'm not sure that it's all about in secrecy. I, what, yeah. My question was really also about uh-huh. whether there was a dysfunctionality uh-huh. in, built into the whole system which you seem to be describing, yeah. which made even beginning to anticipate the possibility of these things rather than precise prediction yeah. itself. Because the, the cult of secrecy itself right. may have added to a dysfunctionalism right. to the whole system. That's what I was getting at, really. You know, the, some of the things that I talked about, compartmentalization, mm, exactly. um, it really lent itself to the kind of institutional logic of, of hoarding information and, and you know, uh, each institution like trying to maximize its, its relative power within, within the state. But having said that, you know, there was a sense, uh, you know, especially after 9-11, that if only you know, the intelligence community shared information, you know, if only people stopped siloing information and so on, you know, we would have connected the dots and, you know, and so on. You know, but there is an inherent trade-off. You know, the, and this was well known you know, long before 9-11, which is that, sure, if you want to share information across uh, the entire intelligence community, it also means that you're at risk for um, you know, much more uh, serious um, security breaches. Right? Um, so, you know, that's part of the reason why we have WikiLeaks, right? Because, you know, there were these massive databases that, where even an army private had access to hundreds of thousands of State Department cables. Um, so, so I don't mean to be glib, you know, about uh, the, whether they're intelligence failures or, or the fact that there are real trade-offs, you know, and, and dilemmas here. But what I would say, though, is that the... Um, the, the system itself is, is one that, I don't know, can ever come back under control. Because yeah. there, there is such a, uh, an inherent logic to secrecy that is, that is so difficult to resist. Yeah. Uh, but what's clear is that what passes for reform is, is really nothing of the kind. Mm-hmm. And, and looking back at this history, I think we, we ought to be um, you know, more critical of the kinds of reform measures that, that um, you know, ostensibly are meant to, to yeah. change all this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just want to, there's a lady over here. Is there a microphone, or do we need one? Yeah, if you, there's a lady here. Yeah. 
Anybody over here? And uh, there's a lady over there, so take the mic down. I'll, t- I'll take one question here and one question there. Yeah, please, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Eve Middleton Kelly, Ideas. Um, I want to pursue that question a little further to ask what about the capacity that the Americans had in actually having agents in the Soviet Union? Did they speak the language? Were they actually in there, in the right places? And an associated question, you said even the president did not know about some of those programs. So who gave them the authority? Mm-hmm. Good question. Okay, yeah. take that one. Okay, they got betrayed by the British. Then. Yeah, um, that's the short answer. Yeah, there's a short I answer. wasn't going to mention. Yeah, but I was trying to let you want to get anybody upset. As a lady, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Conley, for your lecture. Um, uh, mine is a very basic question. Um, a lot of these documents, uh, telephonic conversations, were a part of uh, this classification. Also, kissing your cables, and uh, most of it were telephonic conversations. I wanted to know if human error, like there are a lot of instances of humans obviously making an error, saying things that shouldn't be saying. So, were some classified documents a cover-up for these kind of errors also? Errors. Errors, Human errors, like saying something. I'll give an example, like um, Rajat Gupta's case of insider trading with Goldman Sachs. It's it's an example of human error. So, were there these kind of cover-ups because of which they classified these documents as secret? Maybe they said something which they shouldn't have said. And then the document was, they decided to classify it as top secret. So like embarrassing information, it's why embarrassing. it is embarrassing because yes. it's held, yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. okay. Agents and human error. Yeah, so I mean, Mick gave you the short answer that uh, uh, you know, the people they were infiltrating or trying to infiltrate in places like Ukraine and Poland and so on spoke the language. They were emigres, typically. Uh, and the problem was that, first of all, the CIA... You can read about this in a popular history of Tim Wiener's book, mm. Legacy of Ashes. I think it's good, actually, mm. uh, and pretty well documented. And I think what he shows is that they tried to ramp up uh, these covert operations when they really didn't have uh, enough people. You know, the, the OSS had more or less disbanded, and the, the best of them didn't necessarily continue on after the war and become part of the CIA. So you didn't have a lot of people with a lot of experience in, in um, organizing these kinds of missions. And they try to ramp up at a very rapid pace. Um, and so, uh, also, they didn't learn from their mistakes. They, they just kept sending people, amazingly. Um, and the reason why they were all betrayed was because of Kim Philby, right? Um, mainly. The, the last time, um, my last lecture, I talked about how it is the U.S. intelligence um, community really, to a great extent, um, grew out of uh, British intelligence, uh, in part because... The British had all the files, you know. I mean, American counterintelligence literally began, you know, with uh, British counterintelligence files. And it was in part for that reason that they always, at least for years after the war, they felt indebted, you know, to, to the British. And they, um, and they trusted them like a mother. <laughs> and then, um, you know, one reason why the U.S. adopted top secret was because the British had top secret. And during the war, they actually shared information to the extent that they wanted to have a uniform marking system. So it would be easy to pass even top-secret documents back and forth. Um, so there, that was one of the reasons why the revelation of the Cambridge spies was such a body blow you know, to the CIA and really did permanent damage to that, that relationship. Um, so, so it's partly about the inexperience, the incompetence, uh, and poor leadership of the CIA, and then partly it's about the fact that uh, the British intelligence had been penetrated and sharing that information meant that it was shared with the Soviets. 
Um, does that answer your question? Oh, about who, like, who had authority for these kinds of things? Yeah, it is kind of amazing, right? So the, um, uh, yeah, Omar Bradley uh, decided that um, that Harry Truman didn't need to know about the Venona uh, program to decrypt um, Soviet communications, and uh, yeah, I think that's still kind of amazing. Um, I mean, in some cases, like the the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, they would mount operations and, and not tell the president about it, in part because they thought that it would be safer if he didn't know. <laughs> they were doing him a kind of favor. <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. Uh, but um, uh, now there was also the question uh, from Ankita about um, the, the fact that in many cases it's embarrassing information that's classified. Why is that? Uh, there's, I showed you a lot of documents, but one of my favorites, uh, um, we'll have to do the extended director's cut version of this presentation. It's one where uh, every time Henry Kissinger says, God damn it, uh, it's, it's redacted. You know, and, and, it's, and as if like, you know, I don't know. I mean, you saw like the kind of criteria requires for something to be classified as secret or top secret. It is kind of amazing the kinds of things that came to be redacted or withheld. Um, I mean, that's amazing. But what's not so amazing is the fact that, yes, I mean, institutions want to um, look good. And if you talk to somebody like Nick Calder, who wrote an official history of the overthrow of the Arbenz government, uh, he worked for the CIA for a time. And so he was able to talk to the people who were deciding whether or not to declassify that history. It started as an official CIA project. Um, and he said that these retired CIA officers would say when they redacted something, um, they would say, well, you know, it just didn't look right. It just didn't look right. So this is a very subjective human process. Um, it's individuals deciding what looks right, what doesn't look right. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on a project now where we have many thousands of examples of redactions, and eventually we hope to have many more. And we had the idea anyway that if we look at many thousands of them, we could begin to make out patterns of the kinds of things um, that tend to be redacted and things that tend to be classified. But it's a very difficult problem because the system itself is not completely rational. <laughs> so there are certain things that we can, we can determine, and then there are many things that will be impossible. Great. But interesting. Uh, sorry, yeah. there's a chap over there with his hand up on the corner. Is there somebody else over here? And there's one there's a chap down here. So again, take two together, yeah. If you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a PhD student in the law department. Could speak a little clearly because the acoustics are not great. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm a PhD student in the law department, looking at the legal interface or legal processes which now are starting to use uh, information that remains classified. I'm just quite interested in the genealogy of, of uh, the secrecy systems that, that you've described. Uh, and I'm just, which systems? The, the genealogy. The, the sort of the way this has evolved. Um, and it seems you've mentioned um, it's a, you know that the, the, there's a human desire to uh, improve the way that information was classified and who could access it, and that led to the adoption of IT. I was wondering if you turn that around and say, well, it's it's the availability of computing systems which were themselves secret, but developed for the scientific purpose of improving the H-bomb, that then enables a sort of new conception of secrecy. I was wondering, is that relationship clear to you from, from the archive work you've done, that it was like, we want something like IT, let's get IT, or is it like von Neumann's built this machine that, yeah. that, you know, that can keep secrets forever, let's use that? Yeah. This, uh, uh, I, I've given talks where I begin with Vannevar Bush, and he wrote a, uh, 
um, a famous article, uh, I think it was called As We May See, which um, in many ways anticipated uh, the personal computer. And, um, and w- what he tried to do is show that uh, whereas you know, science had made leaps and bounds by the time he was writing, I think it was 1945 or 46, that the way in which we um, collect and classify information was still you know, the same technology of, of you know, card catalogs and, and, and whatnot that had existed for hundreds of years. And so he, he came up with this vision, he called it the Memex, you know, of how it is that you would be able to, uh, at a desktop, actually look kind of like this. There would be, it was made of wood, you know, but there was like a screen. Uh, it was basically microfilm, but set up in such a way that you could rapidly retrieve information and you could annotate things, or we would think of it as tagging it, you know, so you could retrieve it later and you could put things together. And, um, and this vision was quite you know, uh, exciting for a lot of people. Um, and he went on to argue that uh, it was going to require a lot of money. And Bush was a, a very effective proponent of increased funding for science and technology, for scientists and engineers. And it was people like Bush who managed to persuade the U.S. government to invest enormous sums of money, you know, in the National Science Foundation and so on, in sponsoring um, basic research. But for me, it was interesting subsequently when um, Bush, you know, who went in and out of government, uh, gave a talk when uh, Truman put out this executive order giving the whole government the ability to classify information. He spoke to the American Society of Newspaper Editors, which is very critical of this move. And he said, you know, just as you have a right to publish information, you also have the right not to publish information. <laughs> so, so on the one hand, there was this vision of like, uh, you know, information technology and personal computing, and you're going to have all this information at, at your fingertips, and that's why you should let the government use your tax money to sponsor basic research and all the rest. But then there was also the fact that a lot of this information, a lot of this research was meant to remain classified. You know, that not everybody would have access to all that information. That certain people like Vannevar Bush, you know, would have, with his memex, you know, would have access to all those databases and so on. So yes, I don't want to be a technological determinist. There's a long history of like how it is we got to this point. And next time, I'll talk a little bit anyway about um, the more recent history of, of data mining. Um, I have a colleague at Columbia named Matt Jones who's writing a history of data mining. And what he argues is that, in fact, a lot of the initial research uh, was done with grants from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, was instrumental in the transformation of the uh, field um, such that whereas artificial intelligence had been discredited, it was revived, right, with the idea of machine learning and natural, especially with, with textual data, with natural language processing. Why? Because that's exactly what you want, you know, when you're dealing with millions of cables, right? When you're, when you're intercepting, you know, just enormous amounts of data, you have to find some means of, of coping with it all. Um, and, you know, the way we, most of us, use that kind of technology now is to figure out what movie we're going to see on Netflix, but that, that technology was also used you know, to try to identify anomalies and, and detect events and, and, and so on you know, in, in large amounts of, of data. So I'm being a little bit simplistic, but yes, there is a, a, like a long and profound relationship between the development of certain kinds of technologies to suit military industrial purposes, the promise and sometimes the reality of, of spin-offs that everybody would be able to enjoy that were meant in part to, to get us all to support that de- development and that technology, 
Um, and then the fact that, yes, a lot of that technology ends up getting used for purposes of, yes, national security and even surveillance. So. Uh, I'm going to take this question. It'll be the last question, too, because we're getting close to 8 o'clock. So take this last. Have you got the microphone there? Yes, I do. Yeah. Hello. Thank you very much for a very informative and interesting lecture. Um, <clears throat> with regards to the development of secrecy as it gradually progressed and got more and more secret, was there the impact of, as more things became secret and classified, it was more and more difficult to share secrets between those who needed it. Uh, obviously, there are these sort of institutional fights over territory between the, the various U.S. agencies who just don't want to assist people who they see as usurping or interfering in their, their role. But was there actually, by classifying secrecy, uh, classifying information as secrecy, uh, um, almost a... Uh, how to put this, a, a slowing down of sharing of relevant information at the right time. Yeah. Um, and if that is the case, has that developed into a culture which we've seen into more recent, certainly pre-9-11 uh, intelligence communities? Yeah, um, I, I didn't get to talk about all the different aspects of this kind of culture, but you know, part of it is uh, many people have commented on this, that people who have security clearances... Um, they, 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 and this is something that people have studied, cognitive psychologists have looked at this, where when something is, is said to be secret, uh, people tend to rate it as both more accurate and more valuable. Right? So we tend to believe things that we think are, are you know, collected surreptitiously, um, and we, we tend to rate that information more highly. Um, so conversely, it, it's been said that people who use classified information tend to uh, be less interested in people who don't have security clearances because they think that they don't have the best information. Um, now, sometimes that's true, right? But it's often said that, um, you know, that does lead to a kind of inward-facing you know, culture where people um, can sometimes close themselves off you know, from learning about other kinds of things. So that, that's not exactly what you're asking. You're asking about those people who do have security clearances. If, well, so... You know, that's why I was talking a bit about how it wasn't enough to have a clearance. You had to have uh, clearance to um, have access to a particular program. So Robert McNamara, for instance, he uh, once gave testimony, one of the rare times it was ever spoken of publicly. He said he had access to 30 different programs. You know? uh, he had Q clearance, so you could see nuclear technology. He had all kinds of clearances. Um, but if you were the Secretary of Defense, you know, sometimes that meant, yes, it was difficult, and it still is difficult, you know, to sometimes get the information you want and need, which is one reason why you don't want to share everything that you have. You know, so that's why you have this kind of culture of, of bartering and, and trade, you know, uh, uh, because you, you want access to information that others sometimes control, and you have to have something um, to trade. Um, when Henry Cabot Lodge became uh, the American ambassador in Vietnam, there's a great uh, document, another document I didn't show you, where he uh, requests clearance for a whole series of programs, like the secret negotiations to end the Vietnam War, Marigold, and others as well. And what I found really fun about it was that Lodge is one of the few people who went on record once to say that, um, yes, I leak information. He says, that's how I do my job. <laughs> It is, it is the, not only the ambassador's prerogative, but it's, it's their duty, you know, that they, they have to use that kind of information just to do their work, right, including public relations work. Um, 
So, yeah, the fact that this information now is compartmentalized in, in countless ways inhibits the exchange of information within government, but it's also the, the, what creates the currency that allows people to trade information within government, even if it sometimes leads them to disregard information that comes from unclassified sources. Okay, Matt, I think we'll call it uh, to an end. Firstly, just to thank all the audience, all you guys out there, for coming along tonight. I think I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, I think this is a third great lecture in, in this particular series. Highly original way of rethinking so many things we don't think about enough. And we're going to move on on 17th of March, which is not a secret. It's St. Patrick's Day, by the way, just in case you didn't know. But I'm letting you into an Irish secret. So that'll be on the 17th of March. And we'll find out more about official secrecy becoming increasingly untenable. Matt, great pleasure Thank sharing you this evening. Great to have you. Thanks so much.